Well, in the state of New York, we've seen a law passed to allow abortions up until a child's due date in recent weeks. The same legislation, the term person, is redefined as a human being who has been born and is alive, effectively nullifying the personhood of the unborn. Life in the womb in New York really has no protection any longer. Not to be outdone, there was a piece of legislation proposed in Virginia that would have allowed abortion even up until the very moment when a woman is giving birth. That legislation did not pass. However, the governor of Virginia went on public record to not only defend the proposed piece of legislation, but much more to champion the idea, suggesting that this piece of legislation would actually offer a mother the option of abortion even after the point of death, birth. A practice most know as infanticide. On the other end of the life spectrum has been endless discussions over the issue of what was before referred to as physician-assisted suicide, but now referred to as death with dignity. It is the insistence that the elderly have the right to choose the time and way of their own death and that they have the right to be aided with prescription medications in the process. Rightly does Dr. Al Mohler refer to our culture as the culture of death. From pre-birth humanity all the way up into the senior years of a person's life, death really does reign in this culture. The sexual revolution keeps on revolving or evolving. The list of identifiers seems to have no N, LGBTQIAPK+. And it's not only that this list of identifiers continues to grow, the issue comes in when you either do not agree, especially on the basis of religious conviction, which is now very taboo in our society, or else when you fail to acknowledge and champion the cause. If you do not become a champion or an ally, or at least wholly embrace the cause of equality for people who have identified themselves in these ways, you'll face shaming, calls of bigotry, perhaps a loss of a job, and potentially more. There are scandals of sexual abuse and misconduct from celebrities, political officials, various religious groups. We already talked about um, what has come out in recent days about the Southern Baptist denomination. All on top of this is an increasingly secular, unabashedly secular, humanistic worldview that has no place for and no need of God nor his truth. An article written in the New York Times describes the author's celebration of the fact that she raised her daughter without reference to sin. Like our daughter comes to her one day and asks her, what is sin? And she just celebrates. She said that she had been raised by a fundamentalist Christian family who used sin as an inflexible yardstick by which she was measured. She went on to say that her notion of sin had evolved since then from a focus on gaining entrance into heaven It no longer matters to her because she believes that this is the only life there is. Her notion of sin evolved to her own moral code, which was about being an engaged citizen in the world, being open to others rather than being closed off, and to teaching her children to respect the earth by reducing, reusing, recycling. Her way of thinking completely captures the spirit of the worldview regarding God, sin, and the truth. There is no God, thus there is no standard, no objective truth, thus there can be no objective moral arguments and judgments about anything. We can save ourselves, we should save ourselves, and we should teach our children these things as well. 
It really is as if the theme of the book of Judges just jump right off of the pages of Scripture, and we're now living in those days where everyone thinks, does what's right in their own eyes, right? Pick your own morality. Choose to bring life into the world or end it. Choose when you want to die and when you no longer want to live. Choose your own gender. Choose your own sexuality. Choose the pronoun that you want to be used in reference to you. Put it in an email line so that people can use it. They know exactly how you want to be referred to. Be prepared to discuss the outrage and inconsistencies and faults of those outside of your camp, but leave the skeletons at home in the closet. Make your own moral code in your image. and Diligently teach, teach that to your children. This is the world in which we live. This is the world in which our children and grandchildren are living, in which they will grow up. How do you praise God in the midst of that? We know, again, as we've been studying in Ephesians, that God has granted to us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We ought to be praising him for that. That's the example that we get from Paul in that passage. But how can we praise God in the midst of all this chaos? Of equal importance and perhaps more pressing, how can we offer Christ to others in the midst of such hostility against truth, against God, against morality? What does the word of God have to say about these things? Well, I think the answer is found in the book of Leviticus. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, so it should be pretty easy to find for you. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We'll be focused in on chapter 1. We'll look at the first nine verses. Leviticus is one of those sections of scripture that's probably the most undervalued. We tend to skip over Leviticus because it seems so otherworldly to us. We don't live that way anymore. We don't worship that way anymore. It is the Old Testament, as we call it, a part of the Old Covenant. We know as a church we're no longer under the Old Covenant. And yet the book of Leviticus speaks to us in our day like no other. This book gives us a glimpse into what happens when the holiness of God comes up against the depravity of humanity. When the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity meet, we're going to see two things. We see that God speaks and that God saves. I'll read chapter 1, give you some context for the book of Leviticus as a whole, and then we'll get into those two points for this morning. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the altar. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word, which is truth. As Jesus prayed, we pray that you would sanctify us with your truth. 
Help us as we come before Leviticus this morning to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be refreshed. Help us to have a listening heart as Solomon prayed so that we may learn your wisdom. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we need some additional background for context. It's going to seem like a lot. Please bear with me. But we have to, we have to get some of this to understand where we're going. Uh, Leviticus was written as a part of the Torah, as some call it the Pentateuch. Again, it's the first five books of the Bible. It was written by Moses. As a whole, the Torah was written to serve as a historical account of the generations preceding the founding of the nation, as well as a teaching tool to instruct the people about their God and about who they were before God. Genesis itself is a book of beginnings. Who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? He's the God who created the heaven and earth out of nothing. The world of humanity whom he created rebelled, and subsequently he put a plan in motion to bring about their redemption. Why Israel? That's it. Because Israel is the family that God has chosen out of all the other families on the earth to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Why is there so much talk about Israel, so much time spent about Israel on Israel in the Old Testament? It's not for Israel. It's so that God would bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And he does that through this one group of people. We see God blessing them abundantly through Genesis, though there were many troubles leading them to Egypt. Now, one specific blessing that God promised to Israel was a piece of land. Egypt was not that land. So the book of Exodus tells us how God brought the people out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. The book of Numbers has to do with their wandering around in the wilderness prior to entering the promised land. Deuteronomy is a recap of the laws and regulations that God gave them during their wanderings. One of the main problems that faced the children of Israel while they were in Egypt was the reality of dwelling in a nation that did not know or fear the God of their fathers. Egypt did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. In fact, they worshiped many other gods. We see that especially as Moses goes to confront Pharaoh in the beginning. And um, he says, the, the God of the people, the Lord, has commanded that we take the people and we go out into the wilderness to worship. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is this? I, I don't know this Lord. I'm not going to respond to him. And so God made himself known to him. But the gods of Egypt were gods after their own desires, gods after their own thought and imaginations. They sought after what was right in their own eyes as well. Israel dwelt long in the land of Egypt so much that their hearts had also grown corrupt and wicked. While God rescued them from out of the midst of that corrupt land, the wickedness still remained in their hearts. That became apparent as we see them wandering through the wilderness and grumbling and complaining and seeking after sin and foolishness. In between Genesis or Exodus and Numbers, we see the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus highlights what happens when the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God meet. The issue of the sinfulness of the people of Israel really comes to the fore at the end of the book of Exodus, around chapters 32 through 34. And I want to summarize those for you, again, just to give us the context of where we are in Leviticus. Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. God is going to give Moses the commandments, a part of the covenant that he uh, created with them, involved them following and keeping certain commandments as a nation. And so Moses is going up on the mountain to meet with God. Uh, the people didn't want to speak with God face to face because they were afraid of him, which is a good thing. Um, but he goes up on the mountain to meet with God. He spends 40 days and 40 nights. The people are thinking, 
this guy must have, he must have had it. He's not coming back, right? Uh, he's not coming back down. And so they, they go off and they start doing their own things. They start worshiping this golden calf. In fact, um, they, they go to Aaron. Aaron is uh, supposed to be Moses' second in command. And they say, Aaron, Moses is not coming back. We need for you to make us a god. Aaron gathers together all the gold pieces that they have. He throws it into the fire. They, they fashion this golden calf, and they start to fall down and worship this golden calf. And they call this golden calf the Lord. And Aaron says, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. God hears about this. Moses is up on the mountain receiving these commandments from God, all these instructions, these regulations, these rules to be a part of this covenant that he's making with the nation. And God says, your people. You know, it's always bad when someone redirects and someone says, you know, like your wife, your kids. You you know what your kids are doing right now? God says, your people who you brought out of Egypt are down there cutting up, basically. They fashion themselves this false god. They're worshiping this false god. I'm going to destroy those people. And Moses says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He goes down. He straightens things out. Um, That's an interesting account if you read through exactly what Moses did in order to straighten things out. But he returns to the Lord upon the mountain, and God says, you know what? I'm glad you took care of that. I'll forgive the people, but I'm not going with you. That was a part of the promise. That was a part of the agreement that they had originally, that God was going to go with them into the promised land. But God says, I'm not going with those people. They're stiff-necked and rebellious. And you know what? If I go with them, I'm going to destroy them. Because of their sin, if I go with them and I dwell among them, my holiness is going to destroy them. The holiness of God, we know, refers to his moral purity. He is the absolute standard of morality. He is right. His ways are right and good. And there's no deviation from what is right in God. He is holy, holy, holy. He's the epitome of holiness. One prophet said that God is too pure to even look upon evil. He will not look upon it. He will not endure wickedness and sin. His holiness moves him to resolve to judge, yes, to destroy wickedness and sin. God says, if I go with you, I'm going to kill all of those people because of my holiness. And you know what? That would have been the right thing to happen. And if you think otherwise, then you don't understand the holiness of God. His holiness dwelling in the midst of a sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked nation would utterly destroy them. There was clear and present danger for Israel if God should go with them. And yet again, Moses interceded on behalf of the people. He pleaded with God for their pardon on the basis of the fact that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. On the basis of the fact that God has promised to his fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though we are a people so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and sin and take us as your possession. He says, we cannot go without you. We need you. We need you to go with us. And so the Lord consented, but there still remained a danger for Israel. God is still holy, and they are not. And so there was still this danger for them if God should go with them. This is the context, again, of the book of Leviticus. How will this holy God dwell among these sinful people without utterly destroying them? 
How will they take up that mantle as the people of God if on the way God's holiness destroys them? That brings us to our first point again. When the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity meet, what do we see? We see God speaking to his people. We see God speaking. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Lord called out to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Well, again, what's happening here is that Moses and Israel have just completed the tabernacle. This was a special place for God to meet with the people. They call it the tent of meeting. It was literally a large, a massive tent that they had constructed. God gave Moses specific instructions as to how to construct it, and they constructed this tent. At the end of Exodus, we see the glory of God coming down and filling the tent. I mean, it was so much brilliance and brightness of God's glory that Moses couldn't even enter the tent. And then the next thing we see as we enter the book of Leviticus is God speaking to the people. These first two verses are not only an introduction to chapter one, but they also serve as an introduction to the rest of the book. In the book as a whole, again, God is establishing the guidelines and regulations necessary to see that the people are regularly cleansed from their sin so that his holiness does not consume them. The name of the book itself means relating to the Levites, Leviticus. The Levites are a tribe of Israel and those who were particularly set apart to perform sacrificial duties on behalf of Israel. The Levites needed to know what was expected of them and the people needed to know what was expected of them. What does God want us to do? This book serves that purpose. God is speaking. In the book of Leviticus, we see some 56 times the phrase, the Lord spoke, the Lord said, the Lord commanded. God is speaking. Here he's calling out to them to give them guidance and instruction, the guidance and instruction they need for their safety and their good. Obey my commands or there will be consequences. Today people scoff at the word of God. Again, they scoff at any semblance of objective truth. The Bible is old, it's outdated, it has not kept up with the times. For others, there is no God after all, and if there were, he would be a God of love and acceptance. He wouldn't give us harsh, rough commandments. But the God we're speaking of here, in the pages of Leviticus, yes, the God who is still speaking today is speaking precisely because he is love. In love, he is speaking and making his holy standard known. Today he calls out not from a tabernacle made with hands, but from heaven through his word to make his holiness known in the midst of a sinful and wicked generation of people. That God would still speak today is not burdensome. It is not intended to kill our joy and happiness. It is not intended to stifle our creativity or prohibit us from evolving to our greatest potential. That God speaks today through his word is his mercy. It is his grace. It is his kindness to let us know that we have gone far astray from his holy standard and that at any moment his holiness could break out and destroy us if we are not careful. God speaks today and reminds us that humanity is made in the image of God. Thus, we should not dishonor the dignity of human life by disregarding it in the womb. Children are intended to be a blessing from the Lord. Moreover, we are instructed 
again, of the dignity of human life, even when it is in perhaps its final years of life. So much life has been lived, so much wisdom and skill acquired that could be left on to pass to subsequent generations. All human life is made in the image of God. And we ought to honor that, no matter if you're at the beginning of the life or at the end of your life. Again, God speaks today and reminds us that as humans, we are made in the image of God as male and female. We ought not disregard the image of God nor the roles that he's granted to each of us by seeking to be something that we're not by the nature that he's given us. Those who seek fulfillment in an alternative list of letters, pronouns, feelings that fluctuate from one day to the next, uncontrolled sexual urges that lead to a tendency to abuse, others are missing out on the joy that God gives. The simple joy that God gives from serving one another, the simple joy that God gives from walking and living in the role and in the life that he has provided for us. God speaks today and warns us of his coming judgment. He warns the world that he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the righteousness of one man whom he's appointed Lord and judge over all. God speaks and warns us that his judgment will be thorough and eternal. There will be no end to its torment. As there is no end to the holiness of God, no end to the honor due his name, so there will be no end to the consequence of dishonoring his holiness. God speaks and tells us that unless we have his righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, there will be no hope for us. The world will tell you that God is silent. It will tell you that his word is irrelevant. It will tell you that he is no longer needed. The book of Leviticus reminds us that God still speaks. Believer, are you listening? Are you listening to the voice of God? Again, part of the problem with Israel is that they had spent so long in Egypt that though they were brought out of Egypt, Egypt was still in them. It was very easy for us to look at the wickedness of others and to scoff at them, at those people, the people out there who have all the problems, right? While ignoring the sin in our own hearts. We reject the notion that the Bible is outdated. We reject anyone who would say that there's no objective truth. We reject the thought that morality is subjective based on a person's desires. But we don't always believe, live like we believe that. If you believe that God is speaking through his word, that his word is the standard of truth, morality, justice, do you use it as a guide for your everyday life? Do you hear him speaking from his word into your life? Regularly, daily, or do you only meet with him once on Sunday morning when someone else is talking to you about it? How do you show that you value the voice of God? Has your love for the word of God grown cold as the rest of the world, or do you show that you love to hear him speaking daily? Much more can be said about our attitudes and thoughts, the things that we dwell on, that we desire and pursue. All of those things need to be brought into subjection to the word of God. The more we pursue and delight in his word, the more our hearts and minds are sanctified. That is what Jesus prayed again in John 17, that we will be sanctified by his truth. But again, when the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God meet, God speaks. Well, what is he saying to Israel in this text? Again, he says in verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. He says to come. He gives them an invitation. He's inviting the people to come to him. 
Again, they just finished the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. This is the place where God would make his holy presence known in the midst of Israel from this point all the way up into the building of Solomon's temple. They were just chastised for their sin and warned about the judgment of the holiness of God dwelling among them. And even at the completion of the temple, everyone was shocked and everyone was put in fear as they saw the glory of God descend upon the tabernacle such that even Moses, the one who'd been speaking with God face to face all this time, Moses couldn't even enter the tent. So they're thinking, what in the world are we going to do? Well, the first thing that God says is come. In our day, again, our society is filled to the brim. It would seem with wickedness. There's no end to the folly of humanity. At times, we know that there is no end to our own personal folly and sinfulness. And yet, just as with Israel, God still speaks and he still invites us to come. One of my favorite invitations in all of Scripture is uttered from the lips of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's a great burden that we feel from carrying the weight of sin. That burden is often intensified when we come before the word of God, when we hear him speaking out of his holiness. We recognize how utterly sinful we are. Homosexuality is the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. Everyone in our society is in an uproar about what the Bible says concerning homosexuality, right? But I wonder how often we consider what the Bible says about murder. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus says that holding anger in your heart and speaking evil against a brother is just like murder. Same section, he talks about adultery. No one wants to be guilty of adultery, right? But what does Jesus say? If you have lusted in your heart after someone who has not belonged to you, then you've already committed adultery. If you want something, uh, something perhaps controversial about those vices that we have, you know, we do the three or four or five or six or 12-step programs Jesus says, if something in your body is causing you to stumble, cut it off. He didn't say nurture it. He didn't say rehabilitate it. He says, just cut it off, get rid of it. How far short we fall of his moral standard. This is why it's important to share the word of God with those who do not know him in evangelism. As we're talking about engaging culture, it's not enough for us just to live right or to be the ones who go to church, we need to be the ones proclaiming the word of God. A man or woman will not desire to be free from sin until they feel the burden of it. And that burden will not be felt until they come under conviction of the word of God. And yet as they come under conviction, once they feel that burden, they're made to hear the sweetest words that they will ever hear. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you feel the weight of your sin today, I would implore you to respond by faith to Jesus' invitation to come. Come to him in faith. God speaks, he gives an invitation, he also gives instruction. Again, the purpose of his speaking is to provide instruction to let them know how they may come to him. He has already made clear that his holiness will destroy them as they are. They are not acceptable as they are. Therefore, they cannot come to him in any way they want. 
And I know that when we talk about evangelism, when we do things like make altar calls, when we, we have a come-as-you-are policy, right? What that means is that we want to make clear that you don't need to straighten up your life or make your own life holy or good enough in order to be saved. You can't do that. Sinners need salvation, not the righteous. In that sense, all you need to qualify for salvation is to be a sinner. If you're a sinner, you can come. Now, all of that is different from saying that you can come to God in any way you want. What I mean is that often when people talk about God, they talk about him in such a way that they just have access to him in any way they want to have access to him. If they want organized religion, they can go that way. If they don't want organized religion, they don't need it. They can reject it. If they want to go through Eastern mysticism, if they just want to meditate at home and and just do their own thing and have their Bible on their coffee table and just have their own personal relationship with God, they can do it that way. They can do it any way they want to. Anything goes. But again, the scripture says otherwise. Here, the holiness of God demands that his people come to him in a particular way and no other way. The way of access to God is prescribed by God himself. He demands that you come to him in this way and in no other way, in this way alone. When you bring an offering, bring from the herd or from the flock. He goes on in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall, make an off- he shall offer a male without blemish. Verse 10. If his gift is a burnt offering from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. Verse 14. If his offering is a burnt offering of birds, he shall bring turtle doves or pigeons. Chapter 2, verse 1, when anyone brings a grain offering, he shall bring fine flour. You get the point? In fact, over the next seven chapters, he gives Israel instructions on how to bring some five different kinds of offerings. Exactly what to bring, what kind of thing is acceptable, and what to do when it is brought. And he gives the Levitical priest instructions on how to handle those sacrifices, how to approach the tabernacle and the altar when they officiate. Throughout the rest of the book, there are additional instructions for the priests as well as general instructions for the people as to how they ought to live. This is the way for you to come. When you bring your offering, bring it in this way. As you live your daily life, live it in this way. Or again, there will be consequences. We even see in chapter 10 in the book of Leviticus, two sons of Aaron who disregarded the command of God as to how they should come and how they should officiate at the altar. And God completely consumed them with fire. Just to make the point, to make it clear. You should come to the Lord. The tent of meeting was erected to give the people a way of coming to meet the Lord, but they had to meet him in a particular way or else. Today we do not have a tent of meeting. The church building is just that. It is a building. It can be a standalone building like this. It could be an office park, a school building, or even a house. The building means nothing. It's the people that matter to God. And today, people are given only one way to come to God. There aren't many paths. There aren't many avenues. There aren't many religions. It doesn't matter how sincere and nice you are. There is only one way to come to God. Through whom? Through the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. We Christians are Christians precisely because we believe in and depend upon Jesus Christ for our relationship with God. Christianity is inherently exclusive. Everyone in the world, especially our society, values and cherishes inclusivity. In fact, we're quickly moving to be a be inclusive or be excluded from everything kind of society. But we know and we must speak confidently to the fact that Christianity bows the knee to no one. It is inherently exclusive. 
Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only way to come to the Father. God speaks and he invites and instructs from his word. He speaks and his word is clear. Come to me, come to me in this way. Come obediently, fully keeping my commandments or there will be disastrous consequences. These things we must speak confidently to the lost. Again, when the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God meet, we see that God speaks in our second main point that God saves. I want to look at the text again in verses 3 through 9. Don't worry, I'm not going to go in as great a detail as I have been. We're going, to, we're going to make some summary statements about the rest of this. Again, verses 3 through 9, he says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall make a male without blemish, offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron, the priest shall put it on the fire, put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And again, I'm just going to make some broad observations from these verses that I think can be applied to the whole system of sacrifice. Remember, again, the issue is the holiness of God. I mentioned earlier that the holiness of God requires that he judge sin. The holiness of God would utterly destroy Israel for their sin. Thus, in his grace, in his mercy, he provides them with the means of salvation. A system of sacrifice that would allow for them to have their sin covered over. His holiness honored and his wrath for sin satisfied while he dwelt among them. My first observation is that the salvation of God requires sacrifice. By this I mean a sacrifice of the person who has sinned as well as for the person who has sinned. In the text, the people are commanded, when you bring an offering, and they were instructed with what kind of offering they should bring, it should be a male without blemish and so forth. In other words, bring the best that you have. There's even allowance for those who are poor among them to bring turtle doves instead of something from their flock. The point is, bring the best you have. Give me your best offering. Do not bring me a defective, sick, weak offering. Bring the best the thing that would make you rich if you sold it in the market, bring that. The thing that you are likely to save for a family feast, bring to me as an offering. Bring me your best. This requires sacrifice from them. They're giving up the best of what they have from their herd. They had to go through and make a conscious decision to bring to the Lord the best of their flock. Moreover, they were bringing this sacrifice, the best of their flock, as a sacrifice for them. Bring the best because you are going to satisfy my wrath over your sin with this animal. If the person wasn't truly believing, then they bring whatever they wanted before the Lord, not seeing the significance of their sin. But those who understood the greatness of their sin before a holy God would have searched high and low throughout their flock to bring the best that they could possibly bring as an offering for their sin specifically. Built into this process is a constant reminder of their sin before a holy God. The writer of Hebrews makes this point in chapter 10. It was a constantly, constant reminder of the wages of sin. Every time they went to pick out the best from their flock, they were reminded that they needed the best because their sin was great. 
Every time they brought the offering before the Lord and they shed its blood, you see that in verse 5, the offerer would actually slay the animal and shed its blood. He would also cut the animal into pieces. So they're being reminded of the severity of their sin before God. This was a gruesome and bloody scene. This wasn't suitable for all viewers, right? The only thing the offerer didn't do was handle the blood or handle the the sacrifice on the altar itself. Otherwise, they would choose it, they would bring it, they would kill it, they would cut it into pieces every single time. Every time they did this and they were being reminded of the costliness of their sin. The salvation of God requires sacrifice. The holiness of God would not allow him to overlook sin. Sin requires death. That's what he said in the very beginning. Death had to occur. Thus, God provided them with the means of satisfying this requirement without giving up their own lives. He provided them with a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice. That leads us to our next observation. The salvation of God requires confession. It requires an admission of guilt. Verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The one who brought the sacrifice needed to lay his hand on the head of the sacrifice in that way to make a visible, tangible profession of guilt. Yes, I have sinned and I am bringing this offering before the Lord as a sacrifice for my sin. I am bringing this offering for the Lord so that its life might be poured out so that my life might be spared. Because I deserve this. Concerning this idea of confessing sin and transferring it upon the sacrifice, we see that very clearly laid out in chapter 16. Chapter 16 discusses what is referred to as the Day of Atonement. That was a holy day in Israel. The high priest would make atonement. He would bring a sacrifice before God for the sins of himself and the people as a whole. He would confess the sins of the people before the Lord. He would ceremonially lay his hands on one of the sacrifices. And that sacrifice, one sacrifice would be slain. Its blood would be shed. It would be burnt upon the altar. The other sacrifice would be ceremonially have his his hands laid on by the priest. The priest would confess the sins of the people on this animal. And then they would send it away from the camp out into the wilderness effectively sending their sin away. Beautiful picture of atonement, even the salvation that God gives to us, right? But back to our text again. As these sacrifices were made regularly, there was a regular reminder and admission of guilt before the Lord for their sin. Everyone had to bring an offering. No one was exempt. Everyone was regularly acknowledging and confessing their sin before the Lord. Third observation, the salvation of God requires a mediator. Yes, the individual brought his own offering, killed his own offering, but beyond that, the task was given to the priest. Again, the the priests would be the ones to manage uh, the sprinkling of the blood. They would be the ones to manage the burning of the offerings on the altar. Uh, The priest was responsible for this. Just as Moses was uh, a mediator for the people and speaking to the people on behalf of God, the priests were mediators for the people in managing the sacrifices that were given. A fourth observation, the salvation of God requires satisfaction. At the end of verse 9, we see this repeated in chapter 1 in verses 13 and 17. And we see this a number of other times throughout the book of Leviticus. We see this term here, an offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Meaning this is the thing that satisfies God. An offering for sin, bloodshed, life for life. 
Again, God is not unjust to overlook sin. God is holy, and his holiness requires death for sin. Thus, the sacrificial system was imposed so that the holiness of God, his wrath concerning sin, would be satisfied. This whole system was created, again, as God spoke forth from behind the curtain, out of love, out of grace, so that Israel would be safe from the holiness of God, so that his holiness would not break out and destroy them. God saves. His salvation is costly. Israel knew and understood the cost of salvation by their constant sacrifices, the confessions, the need for a mediator, the earnest desire they must have felt to see that God was satisfied from their offering day by day, month by month, year by year. There was that constant reminder. Now, in contemporary Christianity, we've gotten away from the reality of the costliness of salvation. We don't do sacrifices anymore. We don't bring the choices of our flock any longer to sacrifice. We don't have to inspect it to make sure that it's without blemish. We don't have to cut its throat and watch it bleed out its life. We don't have to cut it into pieces and lay it on the altar and watch it burn. We don't bring this offering before the Lord at the tent of meeting where his glory and all of its brilliance dwells. We don't look for priests to help us with those things. We don't regularly confess our sin before the Lord. Uh, we certainly do that Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday, and that is a blessed um, practice that we have. But the majority of Christians don't. We don't really think about whether or not this particular sacrifice that we've offered was offered in a way that was pleasing to God. And for these reasons, again, I think we forget how costly and how great the salvation of God really is. The good news for us, as well as the good news that we can proclaim to others, is that we don't have to continually bring sacrifices before the Lord. We don't have to pick out the choices of our flock. We don't have to put our hands on its head to confess our sins. We don't have to shed its blood. We don't need priests any longer. We don't have to go to the tent of meeting to find God. We don't have to worry whether or not a sacrifice will be acceptable because there is one sacrifice that was provided for us. There is one high priest who's administered that sacrifice for us. His sacrifice was as of a lamb, unblenished and spotless. His blood was perfect. His blood that was shed is better than the blood of bulls and goats. While we do still confess our sin before the Lord for the sake of our conscience, in one sense, we've already confessed all that we need to confess in acknowledging our need for Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wonder whether or not his sacrifice was acceptable. He's the beloved son of God. And God raised him from the dead in confirmation of that sacrifice. Now there is no remembrance of sin. Now there is no discussion of sin. Now there is no daily, weekly, annual reminder of sin because we have Jesus. Now when God sees us, when he looks down and sees us, even if he sees us caught in sin, our confidence is that he now sees Jesus, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is wrapped around us, covering us as a robe, that the blood that he shed is sufficient to take away our sins completely and fully, that we are saved forever, as it says in the book of Hebrews, by his salvation, by his sacrifice. Sin and holiness met at the cross, and the cross won. The cross of Jesus Christ was victorious once and for all. How can we continue to rejoice over the many blessings that God has given to us in Christ 
knowing the wickedness that is in the world around us? How can we proclaim Jesus to a generation that rejects truth and worships sin and death? We can rejoice and we can proclaim him knowing that the cross of Jesus Christ, at the cross of Jesus Christ, holiness and sin meet and holiness wins. And the salvation of God wins. No matter what the world says around you, no matter how dark it grows, God still speaks and God saves. He still speaks, he still invites us to come to him and he tells us the way. He tells us that the way of salvation is the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't know him this morning, I would invite you to come to him, to trust him for your salvation. The creator of heaven and earth is calling out to you today, inviting you to trust in him. As he says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Those of you who do know him, proclaim him. Rejoice in his salvation and proclaim him. Rejoice in the greatness of his salvation and proclaim him. Again, Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Proclaim him. Don't just sit back and grow bitter or angry about the wickedness in the world. Do something about it. What we can do about it is we can proclaim to them that there is a God, that he does speak, and that he does save that he does rescue, that he does deliver. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the salvation that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the effectiveness, the sufficiency, the fullness of the salvation that you've given us in Christ. It is true that we no longer need to bring something from a flock or a herd, but that you have provided for us a salvation. You have provided for us a savior. And you gave us the best savior. You gave us the one in whom there was no spot or blemish, the one who has perfect, righteous, holy blood, whose shed blood on our account has completely given us forgiveness of sins, and whose righteous life has now been given to us as a gift, as a promise whose resurrection from the dead in confirmation of that sacrifice now assures us of our resurrection and our right standing before you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you do still speak in a world that is trying to silence you, and we thank you that you save forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.